And it has rolled around again. That's Saturday. That's Saturday in a week that's seen uh, unseasonably warm temperatures. Then we've seen some moisture, which I'm sure the folks down in southern Utah will be happy about. Um, and probably the people up north that want to uh, get a little snowmobiling in or whatever. I think everybody almost will be happy. I, I'll tell you this, and you guys know this now. I am sick of snow. At my age, I've had enough of it. I don't need any more of it. But I tell you, I don't mind the rain because you don't shovel rain. So uh, we'll take this rain down in the valley, snow in the mountains. It's great. It'll help our uh, contribute to our water year. And we are doing just fine. Thank you very much. We've got an interesting show today. Um, we're going to talk a little fishing, obviously. Uh, but we're also going to talk about some, uh, some game mammals that... Uh, well, we don't think about maybe too often unless, of course, we end up having an encounter with them. And uh, the number of encounters with this particular animal have nearly doubled in 2019 from what we saw in 2018. And uh, there's some reasons, we think. I think weather is one of those, but we're going to find out uh, in just a few moments because Darren DeBlois, the Game Mammals Coordinator, will be joining us this morning. And he'll be talking about the black bear. Now, the incidents in Utah... the the, the, where we intersect with black bear just gone. I mean, they've gone out of sight in terms of the numbers. Um, according to the, uh, the DWR numbers, 53 statewide. And that was as of November. Now, most probably most all of the uh, of the incidents have happened because a lot of bears are getting ready to uh, to go into hibernation. But uh, in 2018, they had 27 of them. So we've gone from 27 to 53 in one year. I don't know whether that's concerning or not, but let's find out as we welcome Darren into the program this morning. Darren, should we be concerned about this? And, and welcome to the show. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, um, well, <laughs> I, think, uh, I think, first of all, it helps to understand what we call an incident. Um, so this would be, this runs the full gamut. So anything from, hey, I was up camping and I saw a bear, um, that was maybe getting a little bit too close around the campgrounds um, to, to we did have a couple of, of bear-human um, contact incidences, one down by Moab and one up uh, just out of Springville. So, so that includes all of that stuff. Um, so uh, it, it's still, it, it's, it's more than last year. It's, it's, it's a little less than it was in 2017. It seems like a lot of this stuff is is weather related and resource related. So you know, if bears have things to eat, they tend to get in less trouble, and if they're looking for food, they get into more trouble. Kind of like teenagers. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so t- 2019 was, uh, as you say, less than 2017. It's good to know that not all encounters are obviously of a serious nature. I mean, uh, in fact, a lot of folks actually probably go looking for an encounter to, you know, to see one on the trail is great or see one up in a tree is terrific. It's just those those encounters where we have maybe on the ground and you're within 15, 20 feet that maybe people would yeah. kind of like to, to avoid as well. You, you talked about the weather. How does the weather influence, do you think, what's happened? I think what probably one of the things that drove the, the increase last year was was our very long snowy winter that we had. Um, we saw we've got bears around the state, um, several dozen bears uh, collared with GPS collars, so we see where they are every two hours. And uh, a lot of the bears went into hibernation earlier than than 
we are this year. They, they, I mean, at the end of October, I think we had one that entered a den October 14th. And uh, that's just because the snow was rolling in and there wasn't anything to eat um, early on. And then they stayed in the dens uh, into late spring. We had some late storms that kept, kept bears in the den. And even when they emerged, there wasn't much to eat yet on the mountain just because of the cold temperatures we had. So we think that that's probably had a large part in driving this. You know, most of the incidences we saw were, were uh, you know, Hobble Creek, uh the south end of Utah County down um, down to Santa Quin, and uh, that's where we got a whole lot of snow load, too. So um, the other factor uh, is a lot of these were young bears, and so, you know, bears will be born in the den. They'll emerge. They'll stay with, with the female bear uh, that first summer, and most of the time they'll den with her in the same den again that, that fall. And then the following spring and summer, she'll she's getting ready to breed again, so she'll kick those older cubs off. And a lot of those youngsters are were showing up in in uh, in towns as well. So that was those were some other incidences of encounters. Huh, I didn't realize how much millennials and bears had in common. With, oh yeah, with the with the exception of the the parents finally kicked them out. Uh, right, <laughs> with bears, <laughs> not so much. So they they live in the basement maybe that first year after uh, that first winter with uh, with the hibernation. But after that, they get kicked out and turned out. Well, maybe there's yep. a lesson there someplace. I don't yep. know. Now you, you mentioned uh, the, that Salt Lake down to Santa Quinn. That's the area when I think about bears and bear incidents in Utah. We've seen a lot in the Timpanogos area, that Springville area, Maple Mountain. I mean, it seems like that that group of bears there gets a lot of interaction with people, I guess because of the amount of, of humans using the the resource there and recreating on that, uh, on the, that area of the range. Yeah, I think it's that, and it's also the proximity of, of, of our cities and towns to, to bear habitat. We're unique in Utah where we've got these mountains just outside of city limits and, and bears are literally, you know, just up the hill. And so um, on occasion, especially when you have a dispersing young male bear, you know, a one-and-a-half, two-year-old bear, when they go down the mountain, that's where they wind up yeah. in, in cities and towns, especially along the Wasatch Front. So. Now, you've also got Grand County. And then, and then you in the release it talked about the north end of Zion National Park, which that seems to be, I mean, that was kind of surprising to me that that would be bear country as well. Yeah, we uh, one thing we've seen over the last decade or so is an increase in in bear numbers across the state, and so um, we're, we've seen uh, the numbers of bears rise, especially in some of the peripheral areas, uh, like some of those desert areas down there where you, you wouldn't be thinking of, of bears necessarily, um, but they're using those, those canyons and corridors, and, and bears, are, bears are versatile, so they yeah. can fill habitat as long as there's something to eat. And you know, the majority of their diet are, are bugs and, and vegetation, so, uh, so they, can, they can adapt to a lot of different habitats. You know, you, you're talking about some of the, the reasons uh, or the ways to reduce conflicts with bears, and, you know, obviously food is the issue. And we talk a lot throughout the year about coolers and, you know, protecting your food when you're out camping and things of that nature, and then garbage unsecured. But one of the things I thought that was interesting was you talked about bird feeders, especially hummingbird feeders, and I guess that makes sense because you've got that red liquid in there 
that's typically got sugar in it to attract the hummingbirds. That sounds just like, uh, you know, like like a, uh, a 47 flavors of ice cream place for bears to me. Exactly. It's like a big cup of Kool-Aid hanging there on the deck, and, <laughs> and they, uh, they, they love those things, and, and, and it's some that people don't necessarily think about. Um, and they will eat seed, but but it, those sugar those sugar water um, feeders are yeah are especially attractive and and it's I guess it's the things people know about their coolers and their food that's obvious it's the it's that stuff and the, and the strong smelling stuff you know if you're spitting your toothpaste out behind your tent that's maybe not such a good idea because even if there's no thing nothing to eat. A bear may come and investigate those smells. They like that's that mint program to do. You mentioned deodorant too in the release, yeah. and that's something that I, you know, I know a lot of folks don't have to worry about that. Um, <laughs> you've got to use it for it to be an issue, just like toothpaste. But but that was a surprise too um, that deodorant could be something that would be, you know, quite attractive to them. Yeah, and I think I think it's less less the deodorant we put on than it is the actual deodorant itself. The you know the, mm-hmm. the stick or bar that that may be hanging out in your pack that you know that's got a pretty strong order and they may tear in trying to figure out what that is so so yeah so how do we uh, i mean how do we gauge how a critical this is and b how, how important is it that we see these incidents i mean i guess unless you know obviously if the bear is going to be uh, interacting with humans in a negative way and the bear has to get put down that is something none of us want to see um but that has to happen if the right the right conditions occur how do we gauge um you know the the appropriate level of response to to seeing more and more incidents is there is there a a protocol that you look at and you say, well, if if we get to this point, then the bear has to be moved. If we get to this point, then the bear has to be has to be put down. If we get to just this point, then we just leave it alone and figure it's going to disperse into the wild. We do, we do. So we'll uh, whenever we respond to to one of these incidences, we'll we'll classify the incident according to what what the bear's behavior was. And so you know, someone that that sees a bear on the mountainside that you know, in bear habitat, that's not particularly concerning if they're just doing what bears do. Um, and then that escalates through, you know, maybe a bear hanging around a campground. It hasn't gotten into garbage, but it's just kind of there. It doesn't seem to leave. You know, that that's something where we may consider going out, tranquilizing the bear and moving it to a more remote location just to try to avoid any problems that could arise. And then when you get bears that that do get into food and, and become habituated to that and start coming back and maybe even being aggressive, that's when you know, once once a bear shows aggression towards people um, or is a repeat offender, you know you you move them and they show back up again and um, that that's when we would consider uh, lethal removal in those cases. And, and then of course, if a bear injures a person, um, in in all of those cases, we'd euthanize the bear. It, uh, I, I guess most of the bears, even despite this good weather, most of them, you think in the next, if they haven't, probably in the next week or two, will go into their den for the winter, correct? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's a function of photo period, and, and but mainly food availability. Yeah. Just as things get cold and things freeze and there's nothing to eat, they'll... they'll They'll den up even if there isn't a whole lot of snow yet. So and they'll I'd stay 
what, till March or April, probably? Uh, Right. Is it like a human being if you go to bed early, then, you know, maybe you wake up a little earlier? Or uh, is it, uh, you know, and the same thing if you, as a human, if we go to bed at two o'clock in the morning, we probably sleep in a little bit. Does a bear have anything like that if they den early? Do they come back out a little earlier? Or is it completely dependent on weather cycle? It depends on what what's going on at that den site so you know if they they don't they're not they don't go into a deep stupor like some animals and so they're they're kind of you know they slow down but they don't go totally out and so they'll start checking conditions if they try to poke their head out and there's still a lot of snow they they may go back in the den and and sleep for a little bit longer and if if the snow melts and things are starting to green up they'll they'll come on out so so yeah, it depends. Uh, males tend to come out earlier than females, usually a couple weeks. Um, especially females with cubs, they'll hang around a den site. You know, those cubs are small; they can't move a lot of distance, so yeah. they'll they'll stay around den site longer. But but yeah. Well, the good news is, at least in my mind, that we have a bear population that is seems to be healthy. Uh, I would assume that with the sightings, that it's not all just proximity. I, I think, do we have a growing population? Is it is it doing well overall? Yeah, our, our you know when we look at at, at population numbers, uh, we've been growing bears over the last decade or so. It looks like. We're probably starting to see a little bit of leveling off um, in the population. You know, bears are bound by the amount of habitat that's available as well. And so, um, I mean, you can only have so many. They won't keep growing yeah. on and on. But uh, we, we've probably seen a little bit of leveling out. It, and that probably has more to do with drought than anything, especially, you know, in our dense bear units in the southeastern part of the state like the LaSalle's. Um, you know, drought conditions have kind of put the brakes on those populations a little bit. So with with that and having a limited, a finite carrying capacity for the land, do we look at, at things like harvest? Do we see that changing? Uh, do we see some, you know, some, uh, uh, I guess, proposals from the division perhaps? Or are we okay where we're at right now at this level? Are you comfortable with that? Yeah, we are. We just uh, last year passed a, a three-year recommendation cycle and that's that's um, something that's established in our bear management plan and so we take into account you know things like the numbers of females that show up in the harvest and and the ages of bears and and the plans designed to make sure that we don't over harvest but but that we have some management strategies in place uh, especially to address concerns if we get populations that are that are starting to do resource damage, um, then we'd want to make sure we, we adjusted those populations. And we do that through hunting. Well, Darren, I appreciate you joining us this morning. Interesting, obviously, interesting topic for those who have been fortunate enough to see a bear out in the wild. Uh, I mean, it is an experience that you're never going to forget. And um, and most of them obviously end pretty happily. Um, there are very few of those that end tragically. We, we don't like to see those, but we can do some things to, to avoid that as as well with our management and how we take care of things come uh, bear season, which would be, I guess, now uh, anything after this spring when they come back out of hibernation. But uh, but thanks for the uh, the info. And, um, uh, again, good news that the bear population is, is stable and it seems to be pretty solid. So thanks again for joining us. Sure thing. All right. That's Darren DeBlois, who is the uh, Game Mammal Coordinator, talking about the bears. 
We got them. We got them. You don't have to go to Yellowstone. Maybe not Grizzlies. They're black bear. But we certainly have them. Uh, and they seem to be doing well. Listen, we're going to take the break. We'll be back. When we come back, we'll talk uh, with uh, George Summer. We'll talk fishing. Gary Winterton will also join us to talk fishing. That's straight ahead, right here on Inside the Outdoors. <laughs> everybody segment two on this saturday morning of inside the outdoors joined by george summer who joins us every week at this time and uh george was telling me before we went on the air today that he has had a chance to do a little r and d again boy i love these weeks when you you come out of the field and you give us that firsthand information last week it was lake powell this week you uh you went to a little chillier climbs you decided to uh to go up and uh, fish strawberry, but you beat the weather, I think, right? You got in uh, and out before the change in midweek? Well, like, you know, I was I was there while it happened. Oh, so oh it, okay. It, 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 was, it was nice when I got there, and, and then uh, the wind picked up, and it got a little chilly, and, and uh, you know, the wind seemed to, my program that I was using was working when the wind wasn't blowing, and then it <laughs> went away when the wind started blowing, but... You know, you can't, there's no such thing as a bad day of fishing. No, there isn't. Were you fishing shore or boat? I, I went and walked the bank, um, oh. believe it or not, and just to see if I could do it and, and throw in a small swim bait, and uh, there were fish to be had. I caught, I got three of them in and uh, many, many more that would hit it right at the bank. You know, they chase it right to the shore wow. and hit it, and you're like, oh, you know, and you jerk it out of their mouths, but... But there were a lot of fish there, and there were a lot of people fishing, and I saw a bunch of people catch fish in boats. So it's it's not over by any means. How about size? Um, but they were all in the slot, so ah. like uh, <laughs> 17 and 19, and then one. It had to be 20, 21. Um, but uh, yeah, they were all good fish, and and I saw some some dandies, you know, that chased it right up to the the bank and. And, uh, you know, so there's there's some good fish to be had there. And, and everybody, the reports I've been getting, you know, the fishing's really good. And even with this weather, you know, the weather makes it kind of miserable, but the fishing's still going to be good yeah. because the water wasn't that cold. See, I think those fish up there can read the proclamation. I think they know what <laughs> the slot is, and they're not going to go over the slot. No, no. You know, I'd, uh, the last time I went to Strawberry, I caught one that was over the slot, and everything was in the slot. So... Um, but it's still, you can't be catching fish that big, you know, <laughs> That's right. fish, or can you go and catch those consistently? Yeah. Um, and so, even though I have to throw them back, it's it's not that big a deal for me. Now, talk to me about a swim bait. For those, the uninitiated, people have stopped me on the street and said, you know, you guys talk about a jerk bait, or you talk about a swim bait, or, you know, talk to me about a swim bait. What would, what would people think, uh, give them something they could relate it to? So the, the, uh, probably the most recognizable feature on a swim bait is paddle tail. Uh, it's got a little tail that's kind of angled. Um, most of the bodies are slim. Um, and so that paddle tail, what happens is, depending on the, the shape of the body and the, and the paddle, you either get a, a paddle tail moving and a slight wiggle to the body, or if it's a, a kind of a, a wider body with a bigger paddle tail, you get a roll to the body. And, and you adjust that based on what you're fishing for and the time of year you're fishing. Um, I was using a slimmer one um, with a paddle, so it had a little, just a small roll to it, but the paddle worked really well. Um, and that, that's a good ticket most of the time. And I've got everything on that paddle, so that's one bait. 
And it, yeah, it will mimic uh, a, a wounded minnow, a minnow that's in distress, maybe starting to roll over and die or whatever, um, and give you that that feel for the uh, the fish as they look at it. They say, "I'll take that one. It's an easier prey." Exactly, and one of the key things that I've noticed with most people when they fish swim baits is they go too fast. Um, you know, I, I go, I fish slow to, to where there's a belly in my line. That's how slow I'm going, and it, it keep it off the bottom. Or, or if you know it, it's up or in the the fish are higher in the water column, then I keep the rod tip up. But I, I try to go slow enough that I've got a belly, and then that seems to be the right speed. Um, too often people are just just cranking it back in and not paying attention to what's going on, and, and you don't catch as many fish that way. Well, good tip. And uh, again, whether you're shore or boat fisherman, right now. Uh, again, maybe the weather's going to impact you a little bit, but strawberry sounds like a winner. George, we appreciate it. You got one on the uh, list for this week? Are you going to take the weekend off, or the week off because of the Thanksgiving holiday? Well, it, you know, the weather's supposed to be bad, so <laughs> it, it, may be a, it may be a duck hunting week. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, well, yep. the good news yeah. is there's always something to do, right? There is. You know, we, we have some wonderful opportunities here in Utah, whether it's duck hunting or fishing or you know, whatever you want to do, we, we have those opportunities. Well, we'll look forward to talking to you next Saturday. Thanks for the update, and uh, keep the lines tight, or at least uh, keep the sights on the on the ducks. Exactly. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, George. Ah, oh, we know what that means. Yes, sir, that means that the red-haired wonder... Boy, that was quick. We, that's all you get this week, by the way, for your lead-in. The red-haired wonder, that's it, because we ran out of music. Hey, welcome to the show, Gary Winterton, Mr. Hooked on Utah. Yeah, you know what? Last week, we did that big, long introduction, and we gave you all the music, and we talked about it and everything else, and we figured this week, hey, you know, we're, you're overdue for just a short intro, so that's all yeah, you get. Yeah, just shorten it right up. Uh, you know, get this guy on, get him off. Get that's him right. Out. That's right. Uh, okay, so let's talk about, I mean, this, uh, you know, our weather over this last couple of weeks has been beautiful. Um, it's starting to cool down, obviously, depending on the day you catch it. Uh, you might get some rain. You might get some snow if you're at higher elevations. But as long as this Indian summer is going to last, uh, even if you have to wait a couple of days to catch it in the next break, uh, it is a time of year to be out on the water, and nothing gets better than strawberry this time of year. Yeah, strawberry is one of the, it's one of my favorite lakes. Mine and yours, we've had some really awesome experiences, um, you know, through the four seasons here in Utah over the years. And you and I just had a really killer experience. And uh, strawberry, I love it because there are big fish there and they are easy to catch if you know how. And you and I have learned a lot as we fished with our good buddy Cameron Phillips from Strawberry Bay Marina. Yeah, you know, it's it's amazing. One, local knowledge, there is no substitute for that. I mean, it, it absolutely... Uh, if you when you live on a lake the way the Phillips family does, and, you know, I go back to uh, to his grandfather. We go, we go back you know, all from 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 Doug Phillips. I mean, the years and years and years and years, uh, strawberry has has turned and changed from that single reservoir to when they blew the dam to you know the old days when you had Charlie's boat camp. I mean, it has come the evolution of strawberry. The the one thing that doesn't change, however, is the fact that you whenever you go to strawberry, your chances of hooking into a monster are still there. Yeah. That lake, it just, man, it's got huge rainbows, huge cuts. And, and what, what you're going to see tonight on the show are a couple of techniques that will really work for you 
from a boater from the shore. Um, and, you know, until I had seen Cameron do this with his, you know, one of the techniques, we actually use a little bit of power bait. It's not my favorite, but it's such an effective way to catch the rainbows. Um, and you will catch cuts as well, but the way that he runs his slip sinker, which we're going to show you tonight, and the power bait, how he rigs it, um, is so effective for young kids. So if you're, if you're in a position where you're going to fish from the shore, this technique is phenomenal because you can make long casts with it. Um, it gives your kids a chance to put their pole down and play around, and then it produces fish. Um, so the, this technique that Cameron teaches tonight with the power bait, super effective. And then you and I also, we fished one of the techniques that we fished many times, but we learned from Cameron, which is the tube jig, tipping it with a night crawler, and then fishing the deeper edges or kind of those drop-off edges of the banks. Um, and if you're in a boat, it's just finding that 20 to 30 feet of water. You and I really, I, what I loved about this trip is we produced some super fish. I mean, it was awesome. Yeah, and one of the things, you know, back, back to your power bait issue, I know a lot of folks don't like to use it because uh, releasing fish, obviously, with power bait is much more problematic. But if you will use the small, small hooks, and then if you will just not be afraid to cut that leader down as close to the hook as you can and release the fish, rather than trying to use the pliers and get that hook out of there, unless you're just lip hooking them, just Listen, folks, just go ahead and consider the hook a donation to the fish gods, okay? I guarantee you, based on, on uh, you know, karma, it will come back to, to repay you a dozen times if you will just cut that hook off and allow that fish to swim. It will disintegrate. The hook will go eventually, and that fish will live, and, you know, you, you may catch him again. I've caught fish on the same trip that I've caught, released, and then caught it again, and the hook's still there. So just take that uh, that moment and snip it off as close down to the leader as you can, and then just let that fish go. So you, fishing power bait does not mean you have to kill a fish. Exactly. I don't even use the fish de hookers. There's a whole bunch right. of them out there, and I don't mess with them. I just take the fish, I reach down and carefully clip it right at the hook, and then let it go. And I know there's some people out there that will say, then don't use power bait, you know, and don't use those hooks. Well, like Steve said, use the small, the very small hooks. They'll actually hook, and you'll catch the fish. And if it's a, if it's a cutthroat in the slot that needs to be released, just quickly cut it off and let it go. If you mess with it, you'll end up, they'll swim away, but they will die many times. But for rainbows, it's one of the most effective ways to catch those rainbows, and they can be kept, um, and the kids love them. And when you take them home and cook them up and cook them while they're fresh, the kids will love it. The tube jig, which you and I fish, is is such an awesome, awesome way to, to catch fish. And you know what? If you go from Strawberry, where we were, to, say, Starvation or Echo or any one of these lakes, and you use the same tube bait technique where it's legal and allowed, um, you can catch tons of fish. And the cool thing is, let's say you're hitting someplace like you and I fished before, Steve, Rockport, um, you can be fishing the tube and catching trout, and then you'll catch smallmouth mm -hmm. along with it. They'll pound it. So you catch, you get this mixed bag with one of the most effective ways to cover water and catch fish. Yeah, it's it's kind of what we spoke about last week about you know fish not knowing where it is. What you're looking for is you're looking for for the right habitat and where the fish is. Uh, it's the same thing with the bait. The fish doesn't know you're fishing for trout if it happens to be a bass. Um, a minnow is going to be a universal food source, obviously, and with this with the a silver uh, tube jig or you know any one of those colors you're mimicking 
uh, a minnow, a swimming minnow. So anything that's going to eat that prey uh, that uh, is going is going to be um, is going to be attracted to it. So that's why you'll catch multiple species on the same bait. You know, you've talked about before using rattle traps and catching rainbows on them and trolling them. Uh, you know, that's a bait that typically people think of for bass. But again, it mimics a swimming, a wounded minnow, and that's all it needs as far as the fish is concerned. They are looking for a specific uh, forage base, and uh, as long as they will eat what it is you're putting in front of them on a regular basis, they will come after it, no matter what your intent happens to be in terms of fishing for a certain species. Exactly. You hear it a lot, you know, in the fly fishing world, match the hatch. But if you can match the forage at a lake <laughs> yeah. and you watch, if you catch a fish, many times they'll give you the clue. They'll barf up at the boat what they've been eating, and you can take a quick look in the water and see, ooh, you know, that's a three-inch it's, they're eating a little three-inch whatever, you know, small bait fish, minnow, whatever's in that lake. And then if you've got something, I think that's why you'll see tonight, I go back for a few minutes, one of my favorite baits, the Lucky Craft, while everybody's fishing the tube and the other stuff, I make a few casts to the shore and end up catching a couple of really nice um, cutthroats because it mimics what's in the water. Um, I don't know what cheese mimics the power bait. I'm not 100 percent sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure of that either. But <laughs> that's why I have very little respect for rainbow trout in some cases because they'll just curl up with a big ball of cheese and lick it until they hook themselves. But other than that, um, match the hatch. You know, I get it. If it was like Steve and I, you walk into the kitchen, ball of cheese, Ritz crackers, you're matching the hatch. I'm guaranteed to go for it. See, I'm the but marshmallow fish, guy. I, I'm the marshmallow, yeah. but I but I don't like mine so, soaked in garlic or you know that kind of stuff. <laughs> but I've never figured out either. Uh, I'm with you. What is it that a rainbow trout and and maybe it's simply the, the garlic is the vehicle because it floats up off the bottom, and the real thing obviously is the scent that's in it. But uh, you know. Anything that takes marshmallows, I'm okay with. Yeah. You know, um, one of my favorite techniques um, in the summertime way back in the day, and I use this a lot still on lakes where you can, is to take a red and white bubble and you'll run your line through and give yourself about five feet of leader and then just hook on a straight night crawler with a little bit of marshmallow so it sinks and is a little bit buoyant. You cast that out there and then just let it sit. And for some reason, as that dangles there, the rainbows, the tiger trout that cut, they'll come by and just, you'll watch your bubble just, it won't move. It just goes boom and disappears. So we don't fish that technique tonight on the show. But, <laughs> but you uh, could. I'm just coughing out another good one. Hey, listen, you're just full of uh, potential uh, techniques and uh, suggestions for us, uh, among other things. But you're definitely full of those. So, you know, I, uh, I, I'm looking forward mm-hmm. to, to watching what you did with the show tonight. Yeah, would you say I have a plethora of techniques? Uh, I, I would say that, that, that for, yes, for some, their knowledge is vast. You're halfway home right now. <laughs> awesome. Oh. <laughs> hey, we'll look forward to the show tonight, buddy. It's a good one, man. I think you're going to enjoy it. Everybody have a great week. We're coming up on Thanksgiving. Eat a bunch of turkey, but make sure you go fishing. Sounds good. Hey, thanks, GW. All right, we'll see you. All right. That's Gary Winterton. Be sure to join him tonight, 11.05, right after talking sports on KUTV Channel 2. We'll take a look at the uh, the trip to Strawberry. Nice fish. Boy, there's some, still some good fish, good fish there. And 
you know, those those uh, cutthroats fight better this time of year than they do in the heat of the summer. That's the one thing that I hear about strawberry cutthroats is when they made the change after they after they uh, wrote node the lake, it was like, okay, you put those Bear Lake cutthroat in there and they just don't fight the same way in that warm water. That's probably true. Well, that's definitely true. But I'll tell you this, when you catch them out of the cooling waters of the fall uh, and you get a fish that uh, is in one of those slot buster sizes, you know you've got a fight on your hands, and then you start fishing it with uh, with four pound test, and you're gonna have uh, you're gonna have a challenge. So check it out tonight, eleven oh five, right after talking sports on KUTV Channel Two. It is hooked on Utah. We'll step aside. We'll come back. Final segment of the show. Straight ahead. <laughs> Back with our final segment of the show on this Saturday morning. Welcome back to Inside the Outdoors. We're going to talk the South. We haven't uh, talked with this friend of mine for a while now. And, you know, I have said it before. I have never had a guy who put us on big fish as often uh, and as fun as with Greg Giacomazza, which is his way guide service. They are out of the St. George area. He guides, uh, well, he guides several places there. I have spent days on Sand Hollow with him, though. Uh, you want to talk about a big bass water in the state of Utah. Sand Hollow qualifies, and then running right behind is Quail Creek. Now, Quail Creek is, uh, is an older lake. It's a little tougher, but there are some monsters in Quail Creek as well. And I don't think anybody knows these two lakes better than than Greg Giacomasa does. So I welcome Greg in. Uh, it's been too long, buddy, since we've spoken, but thanks for joining me this morning. Oh, Steve, so good to hear your voice again. Thank you so much for letting me be on your program again. Um, it, it is my pleasure. And, of course, you know, wintertime fishing now, bass fishing up here. I mean, the water is turning cold and everything else. And I know things slow down a little bit down there, but you can still stick those big fish, especially you can stick the big fish and put guests on them as well because you know the lakes so well. This is a bite that goes year-round as far as Quail Creek, but especially Sand Hollow is concerned. Yeah, Steve, absolutely. You know, we are enjoying a really productive fall right now. We have had, um, well, two, three weeks ago, we had unusually cold temperatures. I mean, record-breaking. And it threw the fish into their winter mode. And then we warmed up. And now we've got a couple of days of well-needed rain uh, on us, and it's just pouring like crazy again. We're so grateful to have it. However, regarding how that affects the fishing, because we cooled down a few weeks ago abnormally cold, it threw them deep. So they'll probably be there for the rest of the winter. They'll they'll enjoy the winter in 30 to 40 feet of water, and that's where we're catching them right now. Um, we are still in the, well, depending on the skill base of the client, we are averaging in the uh, low to mid-20s as far as a morning catch rate. <laughs> that's phenomenal. Um, that's phenomenal. Yeah. Oh, oh, it's a jewel in the desert. I mean, I don't know. Where else? I, I fished the FLW Pro Circuit for five years, fishing some of the blue ribbon waters of the Western Division all across California, Arizona, Nevada. And so when I saw the lakes that surround St. George, I, I just I just could not believe that the numbers and the size of fish were so available here. Another thing I'd like your guests to know, your your listeners to know, is. Uh, two years ago, they killed the gunlock. 
they mm-hmm. being the fishing game that right. was known in it, and killed the entire lake. They electroshocked uh, 300 fish out of Sand Hollow, transplanted them into uh, Gunlock, and they have taken off like uh, there's a nuclear plant nearby. I mean, the numbers we're starting to catch out of Gunlock and the size is absolutely shocking. I took a client there not long ago, and one of the things that I saw and was so encouraged by is the enormous amount of various schools of bait fish that I literally visually saw as we went from spot to spot. I mean, these schools of little fingerling crappie, bluegill, bass, and I'm not sure what else, they were so huge that the bass were schooling on them and causing a boil wow. out there. Well, and Gunlock, was, in the, in the, it was oh, a, ahead, I was just going to say, it was a great big bass water back in the 80s. I mean, I remember fishing that in the 80s uh, with Bobby Garland when he was living down there. And, I mean, you know, he developed that spider jig uh, and then the tube jig that gets it. And, uh, boy, one of his research and development lakes was was definitely Gunlock. He would catch huge bass out of there. So it is so good to hear that come back. Oh, yeah, and we're all excited, especially the locals here. Um, you know, we were enjoying great big smallmouth in there as well as largemouth. Then they killed it, and now the largemouth, Steve, I'm not kidding you, we're catching 12, 14-inch bass that are almost that in girth. I mean, they, when the fish we caught when I was there just recently, they, their bellies looked just like mine. I mean, they were expanded. They were feeding so good. So uh, I tell you that to tell you this. I think in the next year, year and a half, we're going to start seeing some astronomical fish coming out of there, the sixes, the eights that we all look for, that Quail Creek is so known for. Um, You know, this last spring, I've been guiding for 15 years in this area, and this past season, I believe we had our paramount season. It's not over yet, so I can't be for sure, but we get these numbers from our taxes. And we have been averaging between 100 and 110 clients a year. And I think this year we're going to exceed it because the catch rate, the television shows, the the Steve Brown opportunities that we're so blessed to have, have gotten us out there. And, and the clientele has expanded so much so that families are coming down. Um, we're selling online gift certificates for Christmas presents anniversaries. Steve, I'll tell you what, this is the honest truth. I've had three newlyweds hire me in the last four years and have come out on the water with us on their honeymoon. Now, those guys found the right lady. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, if, if if that's your thing for a honeymoon, ladies, put it online, okay? You will be flooded. <laughs> with yeah, yeah, uh, right, with right. offers because that sounds like a gal that uh, you want to meet. <laughs> so absolutely, well, absolutely, man. It, yeah, they were lovely people and they had a great time. And I was the one that was blessed more than anybody. But right now, Sand Hollow is fishing very well. As I said earlier, deep, and we're using you know the, the rule of thumb in the winter for bass is you slow down and downsize. Mm-hmm. 
And that's exactly what we've done. We're throwing three really small baits. They're 2.75 and three inches long. And moving it ever so slow. One of the keys out there right now is finding thick grass. Now, there's grass almost everywhere, yeah. lake-wide. Thank God. And I think that's really what has saved that lake in that when when they build a lake, when they open it up, it only takes a certain amount of time, years, to deteriorate everything on the bottom. And that Sand Hollow was no different. But what took its place when all the sagebrush and the various things that were there when they built the lake have deteriorated? This grass, it's not elongated grass, it's matted grass. It has taken over the bottom of the lake and allowed the food chain to continue. And I believe that's one of the key factors why we're seeing so many numbers and size of fish continuing out there because that life cycle just keeps to keeps has the ability to keep going safely and mature. The crappie, the bluegill, the bass fry, the crawdads, you know, everything that the bass feeds on have been able to find safe harbor in all the grass mats and then uh you know there's two dams on sand hollow and all those rocks really offer a lot again of safe harbor for the bait fish as well so that they can grow come to maturity and reproductive age and so the cycle continues out there i think that's one of the reasons that sand hollow is still so productive and such a fun fishery well i'll tell you what uh from experience it is a great fishery it's a tough one to learn by yourself but if you want to learn to fish Sand Hollow, uh, the guy to do it is on the phone right now, Greg Giacomasa. Check out his way guide service because it is not your standard lake as far as fishing it. You will see you'll see red rock cliffs and you'll think, wow, this is just like fishing Powell. No, sir. If you try and fish it like you fish Lake Powell and fish those rocks, you will not catch the kind of fish that Sand Hollow has. They have those five and six pound bass in there and you can get them, but you have to fish them differently. And so I'm just going to tell you, give him a call, His Way Guide Service, or tell someone uh, what a Christmas present it would make, because you need that uh, that that little extra help if you're going to do it. But Greg, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, my friend. Um, it is, uh, it, you know, number one, the day is always great because of the scenery, but the day is really great when it comes to getting a chance to fish out of your boat. People don't even need anything. They don't need to do anything except show up at the dock, and you've got all the tasks everything and all the expertise plus a heck of a fun day as well and the chances are they're going to get the biggest bass they've ever caught when they're over so uh, i appreciate you joining me my friend i hope you have a great holiday season terrific thanksgiving and um, and, a, and a great year as far as guide service is concerned and i'm going to be calling you because i need to uh, i need to check out gunlock again it's been so long i really would like to do that and uh, so i'm glad to hear it's come back Oh, yeah. Thank you so much, Steve, for the opportunity. And once again, what an honor to be on your show. Always good to hear your voice. Thank you so much for allowing us this opportunity. You're welcome. And again, have a happy holidays, Greg. You too, sir. Thank you so much. You bet. That's Greg Giacomasa, His Way Guide Service, H-I-S-W-A-Y. They are out of St. George. And I have to tell you, if you haven't taken the opportunity to fish that with him, you need to do it. It is one of the great things to do. I, I gave a trip to my brother a couple of years ago, uh, and he caught a couple of them that were in the six-pound class. Nothing, uh, nothing to write home about. And I'm talking about three or four 
in the six-pound class, and then all kinds of fours and fives. If you're looking to fish largemouth bass and you need someone to help you get on those big fish, that is the guy. Listen, that's going to do it for us. We are uh, just about done for the day. I appreciate you joining us. Thanks for being here. Thanks to all my guests, to Greg, uh, to Darren, obviously to Gary, and to George, my regulars, and thanks most importantly to you for listening. Have a great Thanksgiving, folks. I'll be along next week again between 8 and 9 a.m. right here on 97.5 The Zone. Until then, as always, you have been warned. Oh, you.